This episode is brought to you by DistroKid. It's Throwback Thursday. Hey, everybody. It's Throwback Thursday once again here at Krista Makes a Podcast. And today, we're throwing it back to March 15th of 2021 when Jim Adkins of Jimmy Eat World was our guest. Jim and Chris dove into the 2001 hit, The Middle, and this episode is one of my personal favorites ever, so I thought we'd throw it out there as a Throwback Thursday episode this week. Don't forget, especially if you're a new listener to Krista Makes a Podcast, go check out that back catalog. These episodes are just as good now as when they first came out because the story behind the song doesn't change. Also, don't forget to check out KristaMakes.com for even more great episodes. Okay, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Let's head back to March of 2021 for episode number 42 of Krista Makes a Podcast. Jim Adkins discusses Jimmy World's The Middle. Hey, everybody. Today's guest is my friend Jim Adkins lead guitarist and vocalist for the Mesa, Arizona rock band, Jimmy Eat World. Jim and I break down the writing, recording, release, and inspiration behind their smash hit single, The Middle, taken from the 2001 album, Bleed American. We take a trip down memory lane to our humble beginnings, as both of our bands were signed to Capitol Records around the same time in the mid-1990s. In a true rags-to-riches story, Jim shares how the band was basically invisible while at Capitol Records, which eventually led to them being dropped by the label. Not to be deterred, they struck out on their own and fully self-financed and recorded an album that wound up being their breakout moment. And Jim also shed some interesting light on what it's like to be in a band that went from general obscurity to being thrust into the mainstream from one album to the next. For all this and a whole lot more, stick around. This is a good one. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. You know, Jim, I was trying to think of how I'm going to set this one up today. There's so much to talk about. Uh, I just want to give a little bit of history of Jimmy Eat World. They were the band just before us that the A&R person at Capitol Records, Craig Aronson, signed. Uh, you guys would have gotten signed probably sometime early to mid-95, I'm thinking. For some reason, I thought you guys, he, he, he signed you guys before us. Did he? We were signed. It was, it was, it was right around the same time, if, if it was us or you, I don't know, but it was, yeah. Yeah. 94, 95. Right, right. And there was a scout there named Lauren Israel. Lauren was right underneath Craig, and uh, Lauren and Craig just could not sing your praises enough. They just, as you know, they were your biggest biggest fans ever in the world. And if everybody at Capitol believed in you as they did, uh, I, I think, uh, and even us, Les and Jake, I think we, we both would have sold a lot more records there. But I think we were a little lower, lower rung there. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tricky thing, man. Like it takes more than the college department being all in to make anything happen at a big label. You know, like we had our core team of people that, that got it or at least were giving us a chance. Mm-hmm. But 
when it comes down to it, it's like unless you're moving 30,000 records a week, like it's next alt rock band up. Right. Right after that. And, and I never realized it at the time because when, when you're in the middle of the thick of things, you, you, you have to reflect on it later. I just think and I, I mean this with complete sincerity. You guys were just so ahead of your time, your sound. I remember coming back to Gainesville and I was out drinking one night somewhere and Chuck Reagan, this must have been, I think it was, it might have even been before Clarity. I know Static Prevails was out, obviously. So it's probably between that and Clarity and I'm at a bar and Chuck Reagan comes about and he's like, dude, do you, do you know the Jimmy Eat World guys? <laughs> that's my Chuck impression. That's, that's your Chuck? <laughs> dude. Yeah, dude, you know the Jimmy Eat World guys? I'm like, yeah. He's, he's like, the, the, you guys are like the, with the same A&R guy. He's like freaking out. And I'm like, and I'm thinking hot water at that point was really gruffy. And you guys were a little more polished. And I was thinking, what what's going on here? He saw he just loved your band. He's, I remember that night him just going on and on and on. And it was just, you guys were the critics' darlings. Everybody loved you. And here you had Capital. I remember them trying to send you out on tours. They were trying to lump you in with a pop punk thing. And it just, you know, very few people got you. I sort of got the impression. I was talking with with our drummer about this the other day. When you're working with a bigger label, I feel like there's, there's, there's sort of two things you're fighting against. There's what your present marketability is and then what they think you're going to turn into. (laughs) or maybe what they think they can steer you into. And when we started working with Capital and Craig Aronson and Lauren, we were a lot faster. We were a lot more Southern California pop punk vibe is kind of more of what we were doing. And I wonder about that, like if that's what Craig. Well, I still have I still have the first record. I think it was was it called Wooden Nickel uh, Recordings. Oh gosh, was that or Blue Nickel Wooden Nickel? <laughs> Wooden Blue Records was was the comp- was my roommate's label. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, like, so so we got signed because of that stuff, and then we we handed them like Clarity, <laughs> and I don't, which is not that you know it's kind of like it's moving in a direction I don't I have no idea what they thought when we handed it in, but no one got it. Well, like like I said, from the self-titled or the first record you put out to uh, Static Reveals to Clarity, just the evolution of the band, how you guys matured as songwriters, it was incredible. I don't know if you remember, I definitely remember talking to Tom and Zach and hanging out. I was behind the glass at Sound City when you guys were cutting Clarity. That probably would have been the summer. Oh, no way. Yeah, yeah. We were out there, I think, mixing a record or something, and Craig took us down there, and that was the first and the only time I remember walking through the lobby and just being enamored by Tom Petty and Rat, you know, platinum albums hanging on the wall. Just thought that was the, thought that was the, oh, I know. the coolest thing. But uh, yeah, to- totally remember that. And I have always loved an amazing success story. And you know, you guys get dropped by Capital. And again, like I said, you, you know, I, I don't know what the term is exactly. Critics, darlings, you just you, the critics loved you. The fans that you had loved you. And there it just there's this momentum building. And you guys struck out on your own and said, we're going to make a record with no label. You enlisted Mark Trombino, who had been with you for a couple records at that point. Mark decided to, to, from what I understand, work with you pro bono, went in, you guys made this record, and no one could accuse you of, of, of selling out. You didn't have a label to sell out to. And I read online, I don't know if it's true or not, I want to get it from you, that you kind of wanted to take it back a little bit uh, for Bleed American. You know, you you were getting these crazy compositions. You know, you had Goodbye Sky Harbor, a 16-minute song on on Clarity, and you were kind of stepping back a little bit and trying to write, I guess, maybe a little more in simpler terms. Is that correct? You're always going to be, you're going to be hyper aware of what you just did so that you don't repeat what you just did. 
and Clarity being a pretty involved studio creation album. I mean, there's there's some straight ahead rock songs on it, but we really threw out the idea that this has to be repeatable in a live situation or we can't make creative choices because we'll never be able to recreate it live, you know, mm-hmm. like that kind of thinking. And that led to a lot of experimentation, you know, like we rented timpani one day and that was weird, <laughs> but fun. And and so like going in and make Bleed American or actually, you know, working up to make Bleed American where we're writing material for it, the desire not to repeat what we just did with Clarity. But then there was also a lot of gigs, like we toured a lot, probably more than we ever had up until that point. So, you know, just playing as a two guitar, bass, drums, two vocals band, I think fed into some of the ideas that we came up with just because those are the restrictions that you're thinking in, Mm -hmm. you know, playing so many shows just as a, as a group. Well, and Clarity, you know, there's a lot of bands that would have went the other way. They would have went even more grandiose. Hey, we got to get bigger. It's got to be crazier. And, and the fact that you guys pulled it back was, I think, also a sign of, you know, maturity. It was being able to say, hey, you know, we made that record. You know, maybe it can, maybe it can be this. We, don't, we can't really go bigger than that record. How are we going to pull it off live? I mean, because there was some, I, I'll use the word again, grandiose compositions on Clarity. I think we've just figured out how to play some of that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> we've just figured it out. Like, oh, man, cool. If I do this, it works. We can do it. Yeah, I've talked about it on the show before where you go record a record and then you you get the rehearsal room. You're like, hey, let's learn this one. You have to learn the songs that you or, you know, figure out what parts you're going to do. Yeah, you have to learn the songs again. It's like you do the there's the demo and then there is the band meeting of like pre-production where you decide, like, what else could we do with this? And then you make the song, you record it, you put all the all the extra stuff is in there. And then you have another band meeting of like, Okay, how are we going to do this? <laughs> exactly. And if if you're a group like us, like years go by before you have another band meeting about that to reassess what it is you could do. Sure. So it's like kind of always an evolving thing, or it can be anyway. Absolutely. So, you know, Clarity was released February 23rd of 1999. The album was recorded the previous summer, May and June of 98. Bleed American was released on July 24th, 2001. And I have to ask my producer, Chris, uh, I'm going to read his exact, uh, <laughs> exactly what he wrote here in my notes, because uh, I think this is interesting and we should talk about it now. Uh, he wrote, ask Jim about this. I was in college when this album came out. I remember he, talking about Bleed American. I remember that before the album was released, all of the demos of the songs leaked onto Napster and LimeWire. My friends and I all loved the whole album before it was even out or even heard. Any of the actual- LimeWire. <laughs> any of the actual recordings. Was this done intentionally or did someone steal the demos and leak them intentionally? It definitely worked in getting everyone excited about the album. And if they decided to do that on your own, it was genius. So did you do that, Jim, or did someone uh, pirate your stuff? Yeah, no, that was that was an internal decision to put up demos on the Internet as it existed then. No kidding. Yeah, because we uh, when we were touring on Static Prevails and Clarity, We were basically the international distributor of our record because the sister labels around the world weren't interested in putting out our record because we'd only sold like 5,000 copies total of both records. So it wasn't like we were on nobody's radar. Yeah. But we really wanted to play in other places in the world. So what we did is we basically just, um, you know, wholesale bought our CDs from Capital Mm -hmm. and then shipped them to Germany where we had a connection with a an independent record store over there in Cologne. And through them, we got <laughs> we got indie distribution 
around Germany, shipping like, us buying our records wholesale, shipping them to Germany, and then selling them over there. So like on our first gig in Germany, we had like 400 kids there in Cologne, and which, which is incredible, which is nuts. Yes, yeah. yeah. So we thought like, okay, what else could we do to kind of um, move this along because we don't have a record label. The record, the, the labels that own this record aren't interested in putting it out. So we thought, let's put some of these demos up on Napster and see if that gets us more people at the shows. Yeah. And it did. Like there was, I met kids in Germany who had heard like the Sweetness demo. Yeah. Because we had a pretty good recording. We had a pretty good demo of that before we, we made Bleed American. And um, yeah, people were into it. Right, well, I mean, Chris, it was cool. Chris remembered 20 years later. It, was, it obviously impacted him and a lot of his friends, which is super cool. Uh, you mentioned a moment ago that there was a ton of touring. And I remember you guys were out there uh, between uh, 99, the release of Clarity, and Bleed American, which was released uh, the 24th of July, 2001. Do you remember uh, when you wrote The Middle? Yeah, I remember when The Middle started. I was living in Tempe, kind of by the college. Mm -hmm. I had our drummer Zach's old drum set, like that we recorded our first crappy, crappy, like when I used to, when I used to come over to his place and jam like Metallica songs when we were in seventh grade, <laughs> I bought that kit off of him because I was, you know, drums are fun, man. I wanted a drum set, so... I had the drum set set up in my crappy room and I had like a little Mackie 16 channel mixer that's still around here somewhere. Oh, there it is. <laughs> I still have it. And basically I had my own little, that was my demo set up with, with one of these Tascam DA 38s that happens to be. Oh, I can, I remember. Unearthed I, there. I remember. Yeah. So I had eight, I had basically a digital eight track, a pretty nice digital eight track, like bedroom setup. I can't remember exactly what, I can't exactly remember. I think basic, I think it might've started off with the drum beat. I think I might have started off with like a the the you wreck me kind of drum beat. Okay. <laughs> Just because that's like one of the two things I could play. Yeah. And then I put that down and then I, you know, start playing guitar along with it. And it's such a simple drum beat that that kind of led to the the three note progression <laughs> that that doesn't really change. Actually, there's four there's, there's four there's four notes in the in the progression for the song. But for the most of it, it's only three. Well, again, I, you know, I could see if you guys were still on Capitol or on some label and, and, and fans could cry at, you know, at that point, they love the word sellout or, oh, this is a pop song. But here you guys were just making a record. And and when you wrote this, did you realize it was I mean, compared to where you had just come from with Clarity and how you guys were just growing as a band with these compositions? Did you feel that this was kind of stripped back? And what did the band think when you when you showed it to them? Everybody thought that it was a solid, just little rock song. Mm -hmm. You know, there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, this, it's not this complex, fascinating musical challenge. It's this easy, concise, short, catchy rock song. Mm -hmm. I mean, for us, like, yeah, okay, it's cool. Let's put that in the pile. Why not? <laughs> we don't have anything to lose by putting it in the pile. But it was on. It was no one's like. It was no one's like must have song. <laughs> like I thought it, I thought it was fine, but it was, I thought it also, it, it wouldn't matter if it made the record or not. Do you remember what producer Mark Trombino thought of it when you first played it for him? Yeah. He thought it was the same. Yeah. You know, at the time I didn't think it was as like tough and exciting as a song like Bleed American, mm -hmm. but that didn't mean that it, there wasn't a place for it. I think what happens is like you get sort of lost as a creator when, when something happens easily. Like there's this perception that it's not worth as much if you don't struggle to solve some <laughs> some wrenching puzzle with it. You know what I mean? Like if a song just falls into your lap in two hours and it's done, 
there's a sense that it's not worth as much as the song that took you like a, like three weeks to write like lyrics for or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In our heads, like middle was just so easy that we didn't it didn't have that sense of like we, we had no idea what it could mean to somebody outside of our little nuclear group. And sometimes it's it's those songs that aren't these complex musical compositions. They're just these ideas that go out there. I've seen it so many times on this show. Yeah, we just it was just another song. It was just this pop song we wrote that ends up, you know, just uh, taking yeah. taking off taking off with the fans. I want to jump into the song now. There's a 12 second uh, just a guitar intro that's kind of mimicking the chorus. It's only 12 seconds, and then you're into this first verse. Uh, and I'm gonna set up the lyrics here, and you can uh, go through it with us. Hey, don't write yourself off yet. It's only in your head you feel left out or looked down on. Just try your best. Try everything you can. And don't you worry what they tell themselves when you're away. And on the second half of this, when we get to the just try your best line, it's subtle. But another guitar comes in there playing a higher register. It's kind of palm muted. Just try your best. Try everything you can. And don't you worry what they tell themselves. Just kind of builds right there, which is really cool, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more of that in a second. But these these lyrics, just set set them up for us if you can. I think on our Static Prevails album, we thought we were so forward thinking that we listed a a band email address <laughs> that we would, uh, you know, yeah, write us, <laughs> you know, like because like I don't think people remember like back in those days, man. Like there were you had a PO box, yeah, yeah. Bands had PO boxes. <laughs> For correspondence, and you know, we I think we had one of those at at a, at a point. Yeah, people actually used to have to try to get, you know send you their grievances that way. Now it was just uh, through their fi- yeah. through their fingertips. You wrote the band's <laughs> PO box, and you got if they were a bigger van, like they would send you a newsletter <laughs> in the mail. I used to get the Dead Milkman newsletter yeah. when they were doing that. So this girl wrote our our email. And I happened to read it and she was like, uh, I think she was a, maybe a high school kid. And and she was complaining about, or she was telling us that she liked our band and she was getting picked on by the punk rock kids because she wasn't punk enough. Oh, that's always fun. And I thought <laughs> that's so ridiculous because like, that's so the opposite of what punk rock I thought is like inclusiveness. Yes. Acceptance, like encouraging the freak flag to be flown. And I just thought it was like, this is so not worth your time. These, these, this, these, this click of, of other girls that are giving you shit for not being punk enough is so not worth your time to be upset over. Yeah. Like it doesn't matter. This is the right, like their approval is the wrong target to be chasing here. Yeah. And that's interesting because I, I never knew that about this lyric. I did. I researched the song. I didn't, didn't see that anywhere online, but these lyrics are simplistic enough to where, and I think that's why this song just resonated. Uh, they, you can just feel them. It, you can, it can mean something to whatever you're kind of going through. And like, who, who hasn't felt left out? Yeah, it's funny. It's like the the lyrics to the middle are literal. Yes, a hundred percent literal. <laughs> They're hyper literal. There's really no uh, innuendos here, but at the same time, uh, it could be construed as a love song in a sense, because now we get into the chorus, which the chorus is great because it, it's only 35 seconds and you're into the chorus. That's quick. Don't bore us. Get to the chorus. There you go. There you go. Yeah, of course. Uh, it just takes some time. Little girl, you're in the middle of the ride. Everything, everything will be just fine. Everything, everything will be all right. All right. And uh, what you just said, it's it, it's pretty literal but all these years i just 
I don't know. I just thought maybe, it, like I said, it could have been a love song. You're talking about a girl, and and uh, I like I like the inspiration behind it. That's interesting. Yeah, I didn't have a chorus for it at first. Like the chorus happened last. I had the rest of the song put together, and um, somewhere around here, I have this autographed uh, picture of Bruce Springsteen, and I needed a chorus. And I thought, like, okay, what would the boss do? <laughs> <laughs> that from high Fi- that scene from High Fidelity <laughs> popped into my head because I have this autographed Bruce Springsteen thing. And I was like, what would the boss do here? He'd say something like, <laughs> like what the chorus of the middle came to be. Yeah, no, that's... That's me trying to be Bruce Springsteen filling in the gaps there. Did the chorus come before you got in the studio and you were tracking the record or... Oh, yeah. I mean, I had a I had a full demo of the song done before I brought it to the other guys with my little home home setup. Do you remember how different that demo was to when what you got in the studio? Was it same, different? Was there different parts? Was there... It's pretty close. Pretty close. I mean, the drums are performed way better, but it's pretty close to there wasn't a whole lot to do with it. You know, it's like this, like, what are you, what are you going to do mm-hmm. to develop this thing? I mean, maybe maybe like the just like little things like the cadence, bah, 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 like at the out of the solo into the verse three. Sure. Little things like that kind of come together, but the the general structure, the arrangement, what you hear today is what is pretty close to what it started out like. No, and I think it it just it hits you over the head, and it's it it's a it's a hit song, and I think that uh, part of that is is that you know in my notes here, <laughs> there's songs where I have a million notes. I don't have too too much because there really isn't. It's really straightforward, and that's for this song. That's a good thing. You know, we get into the second verse here. Uh, hey, you know they're all the same. You know you're doing better on your own. And then here's a call and response. So this the song is building a little here. There's an on your own backing vocal that comes in there. So don't buy in. Live right now. Yeah, just be yourself. It doesn't matter if it's good enough. Again, good enough comes back with a call and response backing vocal for someone else. And I had noted here that throughout this whole verse, not just the second half, that palm muted higher register guitar is there the whole time. Yeah, something that we started getting into when we were working on Clarity is kind of what's become our go-to overdub structure for developing the song as the arrangement goes by. And that's usually, you know, something in the verse that will happen in like the B section that provides a little bit more tension as it's going on. And then um, your verse two kind of, it shouldn't be as big as your chorus for sure, but it's got to be, there has to be something happening in it that gives it a little bit more energy than what your first verse was. And so the higher palm mute part that comes in halfway through verse one, we just thought we'd start with that. And that would be like just now what verse two, the rhythm bed of overdubs is is what verse two is. And so, but but then like, then what else, what are you going to do that's different after that? And like, you know, I guess you run a delay on the vocals to fill the the, the gaps, the vocal holes there. So you're just sort of like adding on little bits of ear candy as you're going to have similar sections be more 
impactful. Mm-hmm. Do you remember who thought of that, having the call and response, the backing vocals? That was that. That was probably Mark. Mark came up with that. Yeah, I'm, I'm almost positive that was Mark. And yeah, what what's cool though is it took me probably two or three times. I kept rewinding it the other night as I'm going through this song, and I, and I go through them with a fine tooth comb. And I mean, how many times have I heard this track? Uh, hundreds of times. It's just it still gets played all over. But to really zone in and hone in on something, and I'm like, why does the first verse feel different? You know, and then because fi- it is, and then it finally, yeah. Well, it wasn't even the the call and response, obviously that, but it was that subtle. You know, it was that guitar only coming in the half halfway through the first verse, but the second time, it's all it's all there, which is just awesome. When you introduce something, people have to adjust their expectations. So you know, if a song starts out with just like two, like a guitar that's palm muted, and someone hears that, they okay, this is my baseline. You know, then any sort of like small thing you do on top of that has an impact you know like if you were going to start out a song just playing acoustic guitar and really quiet it's like digging in and strumming a full chord can be a dynamic lift just like ninety thousand saturated guitars coming in <laughs> people have to adjust their expectations when something is presented to them and then within and then you can play around with that just up just as much as you just as little as you can mm-hmm. i feel just as little as you can to get the impact that you want is the best way to go Hey, everybody, don't go anywhere. We got lots more of this Throwback Thursday episode with Jim Adkins after a few words from our sponsors. Looking to elevate your music career? DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that enables musicians to distribute their music to online stores and streaming platforms such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Tidal, and many more. DistroKid collects earnings and payments, sending them to you, the artist. With DistroKid, artists unlock a world of possibilities. From easily paying collaborators with splits to securing your music with DistroLock, DistroKid covers all bases. Plus, you can promote your releases with HyperFollow and create eye-catching visuals with a Spotify Canvas generator, all for free. But that's not all. Introducing the DistroKid app, now available on iOS and Android. Artists can manage their releases, view streaming stats, and withdraw earnings, all from the palm of their hand. And for those looking to perfect their sound, check out Mixia. With its simple interface and customizable mastering options, artists can make their music sound polished and professional within minutes. And don't forget about Instant Share, DistroKid's newest feature. Share large files securely with collaborators, producers, and more, ensuring your music streams at the highest quality. Ready to take your music to the next level? Download the DistroKid app and explore their suite of tools today. Plus, listeners can enjoy 30% off their first year by visiting distrokid.com slash VIP slash demakes. That's distrokid.com slash VIP slash demakes. Hey everybody, Chris Fafalius here. As many of you may know, I've played in the band Punchline for most of my life. Well, I'm here to tell you that we just released a new song. It's called Can I Get a Break? And I think the title of the song, which is also the main hook of the song, is pretty relatable to how we're all feeling lately. Here's a little preview for you. How many times am I gonna have to start again? Am I gonna have to refresh? Cause I put my shoes on every day and I walked out that door. I'm 
patiently for progress. Can I Get a Break by my band Punchline is now streaming at all the places where you can listen to music. So if you like the way it sounds, go check it out. And now, back to the show. It's funny, when you talk about heaviness, you know, when I was a young kid, I thought everything had to be like Metallica, 100 miles an hour, had to be these huge guitars, and sometimes heavy, sometimes heavy, subtle, and that eighth note guitar, that palm muted guitar that comes in that second verse for the whole thing, it's subtle, but it just lifts that second verse of what you were talking about before we set up for chorus two, and I'm only going to read the first half of it, because it's the same both times. This is now a, a double chorus. It just takes some time. Little girl, you're in the middle of the ride. Everything, everything will be just fine. Everything, everything will be all right, all right. Uh, That repeats twice. And then we do something here, and I didn't even think about this till I I was (laughs) digging in and analyzing the song, Jim. And it just perfectly sets up where you go with this guitar solo, but there's a woo that you do. It's very, you know, spirited, a spirited woo. It'll be just fine. Everything, everything will be all right, all right. Was that something you just did off the cuff that ended up just making the record, or was that something that was intentional? Yeah, I think I just did it like on one of the takes <laughs> in the chorus. <laughs> okay. And I was like, all right. Yeah, that's a woo kind of part. Let's woo it up. Right, because coming, again, you wouldn't have heard that, I don't believe, on Static Prevails or on Clarity. No. No, right? <laughs> no, I mean, like, on, on Static Prevails, like... Those are the days where a tambourine was weird. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm glad you said tambourine. I want to talk about that. I had the, I, before I forget. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Before I forget, I don't think I've ever heard a more perfectly placed tambourine. It's kind of panned off to the right speaker, especially in the verses. It just keeps the song kind of chugging along, as if the song the song doesn't need to chug along. It's, this is only two minutes and forty six seconds, and it feels even shorter than that. This song, there's there's no fat on this song at all. That uh, tambourine part. Do you remember when that came in? Because it's just, it's so integral to me to the song. Oh, pretty. That came in on the demo. It did. Like that. That was always there. That's really that's really you know, cool. Now it just, making clear making clarity. We we discovered like how much extra percussion can really help your dynamics you're trying to achieve we just got really into that so we we were it was on our radar for bleed american like yeah you know eighth note tambourine to kind of like give this give this a little bit more energy 16th note stuff in the bridge i mean the solo because yeah no that's rad (laughs) i i can't i can't imagine this song without that tambourine it's it's one of those again there's other songs like yeah the tambourine doesn't need to be there in this song it's you take it or leave it but this one it is just an integral part to it yeah actually we have our we have an extra musician that plays live with us and that's what he does during that section he has a tambourine you know it's like (laughs) that's one of the elements we said okay this has to be there so that's what he does no, it does. I, like I said, I've never heard. A, I can't think of another song where maybe, uh, you know, some some Motown stuff that if you take the tambourine out, it's not the same song. But this has to be there. This guitar solo is so different up to this point for you guys. I, it's just one of the most tasteful guitar solos. It's just it is perfect. It's almost got this '50s rock and roll kind of rockabilly vibe to it, almost.
almost there's no bridge in this song. The guitar solo is almost like the, the bridge, the departure. It's 23 seconds long. Was that on your original demo? I don't know if like the solo was, but that the length of the solo was. Mm-hmm. I knew something was going to go there, but um, it, yeah, I guess it's basically like another chorus of the progression. Yeah. Was there ever thought or on the demo, was there any lyrics there or melodies there? No, it it was always going to be instrumental lead part. Didn't know exactly what I was going to do yet, but I knew like, okay, guitar solo here. And is that something you remember taking a while to craft? Did you sit across from Mark uh, in the studio? Yeah, we did that in the studio. And I think it was... It's really long. It is. You know? it's a like 20, it's, dude, it's, the, the song's only 246. The, the, the solo's 23 seconds. So yeah. it is very long, but it's just, it's such an interesting part in a, in a, in a somewhat, and I, 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 when I use the word simple, I don't mean it derogatory, but it's a, in this simple kind of pop song, there's this departure that's needed, and I feel it's just, it's, it's so perfect. And when you finally got it tracked, did it feel right? Because it, it's, so, it's such a different feel for you guys, that guitar solo. Yeah, you know, I just... I think I think I just took it and what I do with like any guitar solo really is like there's theme and variation I come up with something by noodling around that sounds like a basic thing and then okay so if you play it twice what happens the second time where does it go and with a song like the middle where you ha- where it's so long I basically do like a theme and variation of like a lower kind of faster hammer on pull off riff <laughs> but after that there's still like you know, there's still like 15 seconds of this solo I got to do. <laughs> so like, I guess, I guess the thought was like, okay, so it needs to build. What do you do to build? You're either going to, you're going to increase in some capacity here. So I went with pitch. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it basically, it works up to like a different register and then it ends in like a higher register. So it's basically like finding, finding themes that you can make variations of while ascending for the length of the the time you got. Yeah, well, we as musicians know, Jim, that there are times in the studio when there are ghost players. There's someone, the, the producer, someone played something. I, Captain Midnight. Yeah, I knew <laughs> I knew you were, half the Kiss records in the 70s were played by other people, but I knew you guys were accomplished players. You guys were always rippers. However, I had never heard this style come out of you, and I remember seeing you on the Pop Disaster Tour opening for Green Day and Blink. Now, I was living in Atlanta at the time, and I remember you went into the middle, and I'm like, all right, I want to hear this solo, and you killed it. You ripped it. I, I, I was it's, so. It sounds it sounds a lot harder than it is. It's just like there's a lot of notes that happen, but really, it's a simple gag to to make happen. Right, but it is unique, and again, it's so different from what you had done prior to that. That I was just and and you you killed it live. I was just like, wow, it was just. It was really really good. Um, coming in now, right out of the solo, we come into the third verse, and. There's like this synthesizer part, or is it some kind of guitar? Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Synth- synthesizer like a- or guitar pedal? There's like a. Hey, don't write yourself off we call that the popcorn synth. Yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, whose idea was that? Because that really adds a cool element here. Again, that it just it's another another piece that, that that's um, moving the song along. I think that's. I can't. I don't remember if that was me or if it was Mark. But there was the, it needs something here. And I think that just happened on keyboard day. Uh huh. We reserved like a period of time at the end of overdubs for, for just extra stuff. Sure, sure. And that probably came about during that time. It's funny because I can't think of anything else that could be there. And, and I when I heard it, I was like, and again, I've heard this song up hundreds and hundreds of, of times. 
But I had to go back to the beginning of the song. I'm listening for it. I'm like, wait, was it there in the second verse? Was it there? Nope. It only comes in right there, which is which is genius. Uh, the third verse is, hey, don't write yourself off yet. It's only in your head you feel left out with that call and response or look down on. Just do your best with a call and response on just do your best. Do everything you can. And don't you worry what their bitter hearts, uh, bitter hearts is repeated, are going to say. So there's elements of the first verse here, but it changes on the back half. Yeah, that's something that, happens a lot on bleed american where it's sort of it's kind of odd how often that happens and it's odd that we don't do that we haven't really done that since you know like where your verses are repeated it just makes sense for a song like this like there's how many thousands of songs that have like verse one that kind of comes back in a subtler way for verse three. Mm-hmm. it just felt like this is the song that does that well there's no pre-chorus to this song and at the same time it's obvious what the chorus of this song is. There's no denying that. But this, these verses are almost, I can't think of another word. They're almost a chorus in and of themselves. You ever gone and see bands play where the chorus or the verses are sung just as loud as the chorus? And, and, and that's what this is. These verses are so damn catchy that when it comes back in for this third time, it almost lends itself to have that same lyric for familiarity. There's that aspect of it too. The familiarity when you're, repeating a a motif or a theme or in this case a lyric when it comes by and feels familiar you're able to connect with it more because you have you have some you have a reference that it's coming up against even if you heard the song for the first time sure you know a couple things i love in this verse is the back half on the just do your best the do everything you can in the bitter hearts the call and response are every time there do your best Now you're really you're really getting it. It happens more than any other time in the song. And after you say or look down on before you say just do your best, the stereo eighth note guitars come in. Just do your best. Just do your best. Everything you can. Yeah. And again, they're not pushed super forward, but they're there and you feel them. And again, I'm listening to this I'm like, why does this feel different? And then it hit me. It's like, because the stereo guitars came in and I, and I went back. Nope, they're not there in the second verse of the first verse. That is really cool. Thanks, man. Yeah. I mean, like I said before, each each of the verses have to feel like there's a reason for them happening. And for, for us, that means there's something extra going on in there. You know, like yeah. with a song like The Middle, there's there's a there's a ceiling of how much extra you can put on there before you start taking away from what makes the song cool, which is it's very simple. Was there ever any discussion of giving a little more information in the chorus lyric? Because we get to the last chorus here and it's another double chorus, but it's the same exact lyrics and it works perfectly. I can't imagine there being other lyrics, but was there ever that discussion or on your demo, was there other lyrics? No, it's it was always um, one set of lyric consistent for the choruses. Okay. And I'm going to read uh, the half of this. It, it, it doubles. I won't re- read the whole thing, but uh, for the last time here, it just takes some time. Little girl, you're in the middle of the ride. Everything, everything will be just fine. Everything, everything will be all right. All right. And that's how it ends. This I love, you know, be all right, all right. Just abruptly ends. That's the end of the song. There's nothing. Everything will be just fine. Everything, everything will be all right. Was it always like that too, or did you ever have a fade yeah. out? Or, yeah. Yeah, it was always the brick wall ending. Yeah. No, it's it works perfectly. When you're in the studio, you're cutting Bleed American. And, you know, you're getting near the end. It's maybe getting towards the, the day where you're going to do some keyboards and some some other wacky percussion or that third harmony you haven't uh, thought of yet. It's it's one of the last days in the studio. You're hearing the tracks back. 
Where did the middle sit for you guys at that point? You know, again, like, there's nothing wrong with this song. It's cool. Did you know it was a hit? It can advance to the next round. <laughs> of course, we only we only had 11 songs, so it's not like we right. can cut much. I think you know maybe maybe if we had like 14 songs that we recorded, middle would have middle, middle would have like gotten cut. <laughs> where, where in the process did DreamWorks come along and pick up this record? So as we were making Bleed American, we wanted to get a head start on who would put it out. So we just basically made contacts with with everyone that we could think of to come check out what we were working on as we were working on it. And we had some label people come down and check it out. You know, it was it was kind of funny. Like we had some people come down and like we'd be hanging out with them and they would give us a pitch like like they were going to offer us like a development deal. You <laughs> Been <know>? there. <laughs> yeah. And then we play them like, you know, Bleed American Praise Chorus in middle. And they're like, OK, we're not doing a development deal. Like we're like, I'll be back in tomorrow with the president of the label. So we knew we had something that was going to be good mm-hmm. um, or that other people were thinking is good. We didn't have a manager at that point, so we thought, okay, we we need someone to help us here. Otherwise, we're going to be in a situation where we have, we're going to be that band that gets screwed by the label. I often wonder how many people at Capitol were doing a one-legged ass-kicking contest when uh, when well, this record came out. <laughs> there wasn't many. There wasn't many people from Capitol that were around. Yeah, you know like, what? You're was, right. That, a lot. Most of them left. We we were gone by that point. We had jumped ship. We yeah, went, we went to Fat Records. Yeah, yeah. So it's like. Toward the end of Clarity, our a and uh, Craig was gone. Sure. Uh, Ger- Ger- Gary Gersh was gone. Mm-hmm. I think only maybe Perry Watts Russell had a and R was the only person that was around. Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't even know if the college. I don't even know if like uh, Steve Nice was yeah, still in or, college. At college, I don't even know if Phil Costello was at radio. I know. I, yeah, I don't think Phil Costello was there anymore. Yeah. Even so, it was like all these people had just like gone, and there was nobody left to champion us. You know, sellers of 5,000 records. For sure. (laughs) So it didn't like, yeah, yeah, you can go. (laughs) That's fine. We don't care. When did you know, undeniable, and I'm going to say before the radio station started picking it up, because I know in uh, 2002, I believe, or 2001, this was the most played song in, it was in 2002, the most played song on radio in Canada. I mean, this song went through the roof. It was everywhere. There's 73 million YouTube hits on this song. It's just incredible. When did you know? Was it a label execs? Was it friends or family that heard, and people kept saying the middle, the middle, the middle. It wasn't until like long after we were done touring on Bleed American that I realized like actually how big it was. Wow. Okay. Because at the time, and it, 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 you know, at the time you're just going, you're just trying to stay sane and play these shows. Yeah. And you're not really letting a whole lot of that in mm-hmm. because it's ridiculous. Right. And we had just come from nothing. Yes. Yes. We just come from absolutely nothing. And now like TRL <laughs> has, has yeah. our video. how this happened? You know, like it was a lot like when we first started working with Craig and we had come, we went to LA and when, you know, toured the Capitol building for the first time, mm-hmm. it was like, none of this is real. I remember Craig taking Zach and I to a Dodgers game while they were, you know, we, our bands were getting courted by Capitol, you know, and I'm just sitting there going, there's a label exec that flew me out here. Cause he wants my band. I it was, it, it was all surreal. You can't, you can't yeah, try to communicate you that. You don't take it seriously, you know, and especially you how can't. young we were, especially how young we were. It's, yeah. It's sort of, um, it's crazy because it's so different from your life, but also like that's a defensive mechanism <laughs> to not take it seriously. So 
<laughs> when it doesn't pan out or doesn't, you know, or it or whatever, like you're not let down by it. Well, and that was like our whole time touring on Bleed American. It was like, <laughs> this is crazy. Here we are at MTV. Um, yeah. On the, wow, this is weird. On the biggest tour of the summer with Green Day and Blink. It was, you know, yeah. and I, I, I said at the top of the show that I love a great success story without sounding weird. I love the middle. I think it's great. There's probably 20 other Jimmy World songs that I would have loved to have done today. I felt we had to go with the jugular, not so much from the song, which is amazing, but for the story behind it. It's the success story. Always rooted for you guys. Uh, I, you know, I'm sure you've had people, you know, you always, when you're a band, you open yourself up to criticism, but no one I know in, in the scene ever when this hit had a bad thing to say about you guys. We were all happy for you and stoked. Thanks, man. Yeah, I, I, I definitely felt that. I think when we started working with major labels, our scene colleagues were more like just kind of like wanting to make sure we didn't get screwed. Yeah. It, it wasn't it wasn't like you sold out. It was like, hey, man, just be careful. Like we're we're rooting for you to succeed. But, you know, <laughs> it's dangerous yeah. out there. Absolutely. Well, uh, listen, Jim, we're, we're going to wrap up. I want to thank you so much for taking the time uh, to, to be on the show. And is there anything you'd like to to plug uh, solo? Jimmy World, what do you got going on? I don't know. <laughs> it remains to be seen. That's we, an answer. Just, uh, That's an answer. Yeah. I mean, hopefully we're going to get working on, on new stuff this year. And uh, besides these Phoenix Session concert films, I don't really have much to to say. Hopefully, hopefully after this, uh, after I don't know when you're, this is going to air, but this Friday is our clarity live stream it's not really a live stream but now it's on the internet so it, you, you just kind of reflexively call it a live stream gotcha but yeah we made concert films of us performing whole albums and it's it's going to be an ongoing series maybe we'll do some more of those maybe we'll do bleed america in this year i don't know rock on we'll check out jimmy world's live stream and uh again thank you so much for being on yeah thanks chris Hey, everybody. Hope you all enjoyed that Throwback Thursday episode with Jim Adkins. Once again, let me remind you, our back catalog of episodes is insane. We have episodes with Milo Ackerman, Verite, Frank Turner, Lara Jane Grace, Huey Lewis, Butch Walker, Mark McGrath, Fat Mike, Mark Hoppus, Matt Skiba, Max Collins. The list just goes on and on. Just look back through the podcast feed for the show and you're bound to find tons of episodes you'll love. And also, don't forget to check out ChrisToMakes.com for a ton of episodes of The After Party, our fun and informative show for members of our supporting cast. Thanks, everybody. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time. A secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to Something About the Beatles, now at Evergreen and wherever you get your podcasts. Reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. Yeah! 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 Y
buzzer. WMMS. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles. The Wrath of the Buzzard. P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts.